0: Welcome to the WriterFest Podcast, where we celebrate writers of book, song, and film. Those magical, mysterious minds who pen the books we read, the songs we sing along to, and the shows and films we binge. I'm your host, Amy McConnell, publishing veteran, book doctor, and author. On this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Kelly McDaniel, licensed professional counselor and author, specializing in treatment of women who struggle with relationships. And her fantastic new nonfiction book. Mother Hunger. She speaks to the millions of women who suffer with a lifelong emotional burden that adversely affects their self-worth. You're gonna love this one. What makes it especially fun is that Kelly and I are joined in conversation with founder and clinical director of this Center for Relational Recovery, Michelle Mays. Michelle is an author too. She's the author of the books The Aftermath of Betrayal and When It All Breaks Bad, 10 Things to Do and Not Do After Betrayal. Michelle and Kelly give me a little insight into the author's journey on this one, and my hair blows back more than once with the insights from these two incredible ladies. Welcome, Michelle and Kelly, to WriterFest Podcast, where we are broadcasting, of course, from Franklin, but you guys are calling in from elsewhere. Can you tell us, tell our guests where you are, Kelly and Michelle?
1: Sure. Um, it's Kelly speaking. And currently, I am in the mountains of Western North Carolina. It's a beautiful, beautiful day here. Um, in the sixties, the sun is shining, so you wouldn't even believe we're in the middle of summer. So it's delicious. It's that's, wonderful.
0: That's a great word. It's delicious. Yeah, it that really sounds delicious.
1: Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. I might have to
0: to drive over there and see you in person. That sounds. I think really that would be
1: a very good idea. Yes.
0: I might need a little writing time of my own there in the mountains of North Carolina.
1: It is a wonderful place to write. It truly is. Because any time of day, you can take a break and go for a walk to clear your head and move your body. Whereas in lots of places, it's just too hot to go out and do that. So this is a beautiful place to write.
0: So true. So So true. Well, we miss you here in Nashville because I know you used to live in Nashville. You had some time here. I think you lived here for a few years, right?
1: I did. I was in Nashville for about two and a half years, which felt good to me because before that, I had gotten lost in Texas for about 30 years. And (laughs) I'm an East Tennessee girl. I grew up in the Smokies, but I married a Texan, couldn't get him out of Texas for a long, long time. But Nashville was this great blend of a little bit of Texas and a lot of Tennessee. So I was able to convince him to give it a try, and we moved there. And um, I was lucky enough to move into this neighborhood where I met another writer, Margaret Winkle. Yeah. who, um... <gasps> Margaret Winkle. Yes. yes oh, I love Margaret! And, yes, and Margaret had this pretty. wonderful little dog, Millie, and Margaret and Millie would be walking, and so I got to see them and walk, and she knew I was working on a book, and she... Um, Published late migrations while I live there, and I love that book. I love that book. In fact, I used a quote from her book in the final conclusion of Mother Hunger.
0: Oh, I love that so much. That's so good. Well, shout out to Margaret and to yes for her encouragement of you. Yes. Um, that's awesome. I love it. Well, anytime you want to come back to Nashville, you have an open door in my house. So just just uh, actually, I'll just leave it open. You can hop on in. So and Michelle, where are you right now?
2: So I am in Leesburg, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., so right outside of Washington, D.C., and it is hot here. It's like 90 degrees, (laughs) so it's the opposite of what Kelly has going on. But I'm set up on my sun porch. I have a sun porch on the back of my house, and it looks out on a yard that's full of trees, big yard with a koi pond and a waterfall. So even though it's 90, I like to crack my window so I can hear the water.
0: The sound of water running was yeah. so relaxing and beautiful. That's one yeah, of my
2: favorites. I like, that. I like it when I'm writing to do that. And I've got it set up so I can kind of look at the green and it helps me to look at something out. It helps me to look at nature when I'm writing. I need that big expansive view. So it's good for what me. What
0: a gift. Well, you can tell like our listeners know from just your your uh, um, you're telling us where you are. That both of you are writers because you're you're, really, you're both very sensory oriented and also like evoking place is really good with both of you. So I just wanted to say congratulations to Kelly because it's Mother Hunger Mother Hunger's release day, right? So I just got my copy, my pre ordered copy in the mail yesterday. So so are how, are you excited? I'm so excited that Mother Hunger is now out in the world, right?
1: I'm thrilled that she's out in the world. Uh, yesterday was the birth day of her appearance. And I really all day felt like I was having a birthday. <laughs> it was the best feeling. And, and I did not have that the first time I wrote a book. So this is my second book. Um, my first book I published in 2008 and then did another edition of it in 2012. But this book, Mother Hunger, is the book I was supposed to write. Um, I think those were my starter books. They were kind of a forerunner of sorts. And actually, I wouldn't have gotten to Mother Hunger without them, so I'm grateful. But I never had this feeling when they were when they were published uh, that I have with Mother Hunger. I feel almost euphoric. I'm so happy and feeling, um, well, just very emotional, actually. It's, yes, I'm excited. I'm happy. I'm euphoric. But there's also other stuff in there, kind of like when... That I don't, I don't think I've named yet. And I think it reminds me the most of when I gave birth to a baby in real life. And it was so exciting, but it was also terrifying. Like, oh my gosh, what, what have I done? <laughs> I've got this baby I'm now responsible for. And, and the baby's so perfect. And what if I do something wrong? And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited, but I can tell I'm also mixed. I'm very emotional. Oh my goodness.
0: What a wonderful summation of your like that just I think probably that's a very I was going to say common, but that's not the right word. I bet a lot of authors feel that way, and they don't even give themselves permission or maybe they're not self- aware enough to know that there are
1: layered emotions
0: there. It's not just happiness. It's also like what in the world? I think that's exactly, wonderfully
1: exactly. And um, I also think it might be helpful to kind of. Keep in mind that this topic is pretty loaded. <laughs> so Mother Hunger, for so many reasons, took a long time to write. It took a long time for me to get to a place where I could write it, and then to bring it into the world. I think some of the trepidation is real. You know, we have so many taboos around talking about our mothers.
0: Right. Right. Oh, my goodness. So true. Well, for those uninitiated to what Mother Hunger is, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about
1: the book? I'd be happy to. Yes. So Mother Hunger, in a scientific kind of way or definition, would be something, a name for an attachment injury. I think attachment theory has gained momentum finally in being the overarching psychological theory for why we do what we do as humans, why we love the way we love, why we function the way we do, and when we are infants and little ones, usually before the age of three, is when we are learning about attachment. How to attach, is it safe, does it feel good, and when we're securely attached, overall attachment has been a positive experience, and our first attachment is in utero with our mother. We first start learning about what love feels like, sounds like, tastes like in utero. And in the first three years of life, in her proximity or without her proximity is where we're learning what love feels like and what attachment is and is it safe. So mother hunger applies to the 50% of the population that didn't have a secure attachment. In science, we call that insecurely attached, and then we break it into categories, categories of avoidant or anxious or just disorganized. What I did is give it a term that's less scientific, and a term called mother hunger because that's what it feels like. That's what insecure attachment actually feels like. It feels like a constant hunger for a certain quality of love that we associate with mothers, the quality of love that is maternal, I had to operationalize because so many of us don't even know what it is we're craving because there's no definition of mothering.
0: Wait, wait, wait. What What do you mean? What is operationalize? What does that mean? You had to operationalize it?
1: I had to operationalize what it is to mother. Because if you look up in the Cambridge Dictionary, what is a mother? It says it means to take care of someone as a mother would. Well, that doesn't tell us anything. So a lot of us as women come to mothering with no idea really what we're supposed to do. And just because we have mammary glands does not mean we know what to do. So I had to operationalize it as a clinician to help my clients understand what they lost. But I also needed to know as a mother. So I come at this in an embodied way. But I broke it down into three essential things that we need from a mother and that a mother provides. The first is nurturance. The second is protection. And the third, that comes a bit later, is guidance. Without nurturing and protection in adequate ways, we suffer. We are little attachment-seeking creatures. We need nurturing in order to feel what love is because we can't cognitively digest what love is when we're little. And we need to be safe. So our attachment needs... Um, demand that we have these things. If they're not there, if we miss out on them, we will grow up hungry for what we lost, and a lot of us don't even know what it is because there's not been a name until now.
0: So good, so good, and then and then the guidance
1: is is a piece of that as well. The guidance is a important piece of that as well, but it comes a bit later. You know, as as women, when we start to move into, we're moving out of girlhood into uh, adolescence and starting to think about what kind of woman we're going to be in the world, ideally we can look to our mother to be a role model. She's someone we could admire, someone who inspires us, and that would be ideal. I have so many stories, however, from adult daughters who almost quietly furtively say i was embarrassed of my mother and so they didn't have a guide or my mother was kind of too involved in my life she needed me i was her mother so there's a role reversal for lots of adult daughters where they in fact were more nurturing and protective of their mother than their mother was for them the way i use the way i describe it in the book is i use this beautiful memoir called wild game Adrienne Brudeau wrote this beautiful book. Um, do you know her, Amy? I don't, no. Okay. Well, she she tells this beautiful coming-of-age story. And she's 14 in the memoir, has just had her first kiss. And this is not a spoiler alert. This happens very beginning of the book, and then the book goes on. But, And so she's in bed that night and kind of um, marinating and how wonderful her first kiss was and on the beach and everything. And then her mother comes in to say goodnight and proceeds to disclose that she has just started having an affair with a family friend. So now this precious 14-year-old has become a co-conspirator with her mother, loses her own journey, and instead becomes um, her mother's protector, her mother's confidant, it, it derails her own relationship with her father because she's keeping the secret. It's Anyway, there, it's a beautiful read, but that's a great example of poor maternal guidance. <laughs> so I think right. Hollywood, you know, this is why we love the Gilmore Girls, I guess. Hollywood really loves to romanticize this idea that mothers and daughters can be best friends. And that's sad because what's lost in that is the fact that a, a daughter really needs her mother to be a guide, not to be a best friend. That can come later in life, but she needs a guide. Mm,
0: so good. So good. So I think as I'm listening to this and, and Kelly, you know, cause we've, you know, we've had, we've talked about this quite a bit. I, I am a mother. But I'm also a daughter. And so I, I think a lot of us are listening to this going, oh, man, if I read Kelly's book, is it going to show me how bad I've messed up? Like, Is, is it a guidebook for mothers? or is, you know, Can you address like, who is the end consumer of this book and, and how are we supposed to internalize it?
1: Amy, thank you so much for bringing that up. The beginning of this book, I mentioned many times, please read this book as a daughter not a mother. This is not a parenting manual. This is not a guidebook at all. And I think what is so, so difficult is that as adult daughters, we, if we're mothers, it's really hard to keep that straight. It's really hard to stay on the page as a daughter because then the minute we have an aha of our own, like, oh, God, that feels good. No wonder I've always done that. Then we immediately think, oh dear, what did I do to my child? (laughs) You know? So I'm right there with you as a mother. And there's much compassion in the book for how difficult it is to be a mother when carrying mother hunger. If we have our own mother hunger, we don't necessarily have the roadmap for how to be a mother. We may know what we don't want to do, but that doesn't mean we know what we do want to do. And we certainly do not live in a culture that gives us any concrete help with this it's like we live in this world that says to us how about you go swim the english channel but we're going to tie an arm behind your back now let's see what you can do and that's what mothers have to do it's really difficult so no this is not a book to help you mother or that will have you leaving feeling that you um did everything wrong. Hopefully just the opposite. Much compassion, much understanding of patriarchy and how it keeps women um, from accessing our whole self, why we're always maybe pretty anxious, living in a world where we're sexual prey. There's just so many cards stacked against us as women that then make mothering very, very difficult. So it's amazing to me that only 50% of the population even fall on the insecure attachment scale. That's what the science says. I actually don't know that I agree with it, but that's what the science says. I mean, that's pretty scary. 50% Uh, is pretty, that's pretty high. Well, to me, it doesn't seem that high, but then keep in mind my perspective. I'm a clinician, so the people that are securely attached are not coming into my office.
0: (laughs) Oh, good point. Good point. Or maybe they're just lying.
1: We do that as humans. We do do that. We lie to ourselves and we lie to each other, but some of that's just protective. I don't know that it's even on purpose. I think our brains protect us from knowing sometimes if um, if we're insecurely attached.
0: Right. Well, I and I have seen since since reading Mother Hunger, which I was fortunate to read an early edition of it. Since reading Mother Hunger, I have been very aware of how much attachment theory is becoming very popular in in pop and just pop culture. That terminology is very is prevalent. So I, I think diving into that deeply in your book and seeking to heal what's hungry in myself is and that's what a, what a tremendous opportunity for me to be able to read the book and, and maybe heal some of the things that I didn't even know were broken. It's just, it's wonderful. I'm so, I'm, I'm very evangelistic about the book. I've been telling a lot of people about the book already. So hopefully this will, will reach an either even broader audience um, and we'll people will go out and order it right now.
1: And and I just have to say for the listener, Amy's being very humble here. I want to say how I found Amy. So I was lucky enough to be um, living very close to Parnassus, our favorite bookstore. And I read about an event that Amy was going to be speaking. And the book title, her book title, just grabbed me right around my heart so I went and I listened and I studied every move she made, every word she said, and then I called her. And I said, Amy, I would like you to read the rough draft of my manuscript and do what you do. Amy was the first person to read my manuscript and edited it in such a beautiful, beautiful way oh, that you. let me then go in and make it and make it the book that it is today. So Amy, thank you.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you, Kelly. I'm honored that that I got to be a part of that. I, I mean, I told you then, like this feels like a big deal. Like i I'm, I know I'm being, a par- I'm a part of something that's going to impact women in such a profound way. So, even then, I knew I was, I was, you know, touching the, the, um, touching something that was going to be very, very big. So, thank you for for letting me be a part of that. Friends, let me tell you, if you don't already know, about Thistle Farms. It's a social justice enterprise that provides healing, housing, and employment for women survivors of trafficking, prostitution, and addiction. The way they employ survivors while also funding their mission is by selling beautiful lotions, scrubs, candles, I love the candles, and essential oils that are handmade by the women in their program. The products are incredible, and they're the perfect way to make Conscious purchases of practical items like hand soap and their thoughtful gifts. So use the code RIDERFEST, all one word, for 15% off at thistlefarms.org. And that offer expires at the end of 2021. So I know I was an early reader, but Michelle, you guys have been writing partners. So I want to talk about your partnership and Michelle, what you do. I know, Michelle, you actually have two books out as well. So you both are in the same boat now. You both have two books out. Your Michelle, your books are, I think I believe, The Aftermath of Betrayal and When It All Breaks Bad, which is a, a, an interesting thought, When It All Breaks Bad, 10 yeah. Things to Do and Not Do After Betrayal. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So those books are two little nuggets that I wrote for people who are right after adult sexual betrayal. So basically I'm focused on working with people who are adults who have experienced sexual betrayal through cheating, whether that's like a traditional affair or dealing with a sex addiction, a partner who's sexually addicted, anything like that. So those two books are like little nuggets for people that are in the what I call the shock and awe right mm-hmm. after the discovery when they Literally their brain is so disorganized. They can't even read a full book. So they're like little nuggets to really help them immediately right afterward. And then I just, can we just sit with that for just a minute? I love
0: the kindness in that. I think so Mm -hmm. often um, we, we forget that there is an end reader. And that she or he is in a specific space, and so it's so important to kind of address not just what their need is, but like how do they need to ingest that, right? So I love that you said it that way. Then they're in when they're in the shock and awe, and their brain is too disorganized to take in a bunch of information. This is a nugget to kind of just get them through that that period. Um, So that's wonderful. Thanks for for phrasing it that way. It's helpful.
2: Yeah. No, I just I. I I'm so aware of how overwhelming the first weeks are for people and how disorganized their entire bodies are with the experience of trauma that they're in and so not just brains you said
0: their bodies I'm sorry You said not just you you didn't use the yes. term brain you said their bodies are that's interesting okay cool
2: yeah their bodies are in disorganization because When the threat response system fires, the attachment system fires with it, and the entire body goes into a response that is a disorganized, overwhelming response when we experience trauma. Yeah,
0: that I'm I'm feel. I have the emoji happening where (laughs) you know the emoji where there's a little brain that disconnects from their body, and it's like. Powder coming out of the head. I'm feeling like, wow, that is such an insight to me that that um, trauma will, you know, have that sort of impact on the whole person. That's really cool. Okay, sorry, didn't mean to just just distract you from your book. So, so that's that's the space that you live in. Really, is is
2: um, space I'm in, and I'm working on a book right now that is a big book, like a regular sized book, not a (laughs) nugget, right? And that will really take betrayal trauma, looking at the issue of adult betrayal trauma from the perspective of attachment theory and put a new model for treating and thinking about this issue out into the world. And that's really how Kelly and I Hmm. came together because we've both been down in the attachment research for the past few years as we've been, um, I think Kelly put great words to this the other day, we were talking as we've been building theory in these different arenas. So different arenas, but also incredible overlap in the two arenas. And so Kelly, do you want to, because I think you reached out to me is how
1: we first got connected. Exactly. I was um, on our listserv and Michelle and I belong to the same professional organization of trauma and addiction specialists. And so she made a comment, a post on our listserv that was so rich and deep and complex that I thought I'm going to reach out to Michelle, because I was writing Mother Hunger, and part of Mother Hunger, the difficulty of writing it is that when a mother is frightening to her child, what we have is a complex betrayal trauma that's starting to happen for that child, and I needed a colleague that understood that, so I reached out to Michelle, um, because she was grabbing on the concept of betrayal blindness. Mm -hmm. And this is a pretty heady concept that we don't necessarily need to go into today, but that's what took me to Michelle. And the minute she and I started talking about this and I realized that's why we don't know as children that this has happened to us. We are blind to the betrayal because we can't see it. If we actually could see it, it would be too terrifying. So our sweet brain protects us from knowing when we're being betrayed by the person who's supposed to love us.
0: That's something that I remember actually, Kelly, from the book is that you you talk about our, um, our brains with this sort of – you use kind of a metaphor to kind of say, but it, I think it's true, is that our brains are actually kind to us. Yes. That they have mechanisms – that the, our brains have mechanisms that, uh, sort of embedded in them. They're, they're built to be kind to us. And so there are things that happen in our brains that are – it's like <laughs> we're, we're, we're wired – with compassion, which I think is so fascinating.
2: Yeah, It is fascinating. I was going to say, too, I think where it's such an interesting intersection of Kelly's work and then the work on adult betrayal trauma is what we're really looking at is what happens when your primary attachment figure, and for Kelly, that's a mother, and for my audience, that's a partner. But what happens- it's an adult relationship in your yeah. in your practice, but in both cases, it's your primary attachment figure. So, what happens when your primary attachment figure is the one who becomes dangerous? is the one who becomes frightening or threatening in some way. And you are bonded to them, so they're the person, when your attachment system fires, it actually moves us toward our attachment figures. It prompts us to go toward them when we experience distress because they are who we go to for comfort, for a sense of safe base, for a sense of security in the world. So what happens when your attachment system is prompting you to move toward the person who's actually frightening? Who's actually creating a sense of threat for you at the same time? That's a profound bind for our bodies and our minds and our hearts to deal with. And Kelly's looking at that's the bind of an infant, a toddler, a child dealing with a mother who's not able to mother. I mean, you correct my wording, Kelly. I you will. know, I will. Yeah. I'm looking at that with adults with their primary, their partner, who's their primary attachment figure, who's now become threatening. And this dilemma that occurs as a result of that. So that's where there's some intersection for us. Um, Michelle's
1: work intersects with mine when, and I want to be clear because there are lots of mothers probably listening. Mm -hmm. Mother hunger exists on a spectrum and not all mother hunger is a profound relational betrayal, like, but third degree mother hunger is. Third degree mother hunger is a separate chapter of the book. It's a separate type of mother hunger, but it is what happens when the mother is actually threatening her child and that happens more than we like to think about. It's not a popular topic. If you want to watch a movie where you can see what this looks like, Edith Piaf's story or Judy Garland's story or the Billie Holiday story, that's all third-degree mother hunger. But what Michelle was conceptualizing that I was also trying to write about in third degree is how as women, when we get stressed, we don't just fight or flee we tend and befriend. We actually go toward people we love. We go toward people we care about. That's wired into us. And that's Shelley Taylor's research from two thousand. she She was noticing that the fight and flight r- reflex didn't fit for a lot of her her patients. And so she started studying, and it was those studies were done on men. So she started studying women. Actually, at the University of Texas, there was even a study done where they put men and women in a room they told them all they were going to have an electric shock well the men all went to wait for their shot their shock by themselves the women either wanted to be near the men or near each other while they waited for their electric shock so we we are bonding creatures and we go toward people we are attached to when we're frightened and the scary thing is when the person we're attached to is the one that's frightening us, we become disorganized. And so this can happen in adulthood, but this can also happen to children. And children with disorganized attachment get terrible diagnoses that are not helpful, helpful at all, which is why I wrote the book. Mm, mm,
0: mm, mm. Oh, so good. So good. I wish, I'm so. Uh, Glad both of you are alive and doing what you're doing. It just makes me so happy. I'm like, ah, talk to you all day. So I can see. So I've got to. I've got to kind of remember that we're on WriterFest podcast. So the people who are listening are definitely going to be uh, readers, but also writers, and so they're going to be very interested in the way that y'all met, which you've just explained. And I can. And any fool can see that you have. um uh, both, are, both of you are very intelligent, and in that you have overlapping concerns, and and um, actually, sounds like your lives work a little bit alike. What did it look like in practical terms to work together? What it, What has been your friendship and your um, it, your professional friendship or your your writing partnership, if you will? What has that been like?
2: Well, you know, it was interesting when Kelly reached out to me. I think there was a very quick resonance for her and I because we are interested in the same things. We're sort of swimming in the same professional pools together um, and have been for a while. And so there was a real quick resonance. And so we quickly kind of started talking about working on our writing with one another. And I think, you know, I've had other people that I've been traveling with and working with uh, my writing with, and the piece that I feel like Kelly just really has brought that has been so invaluable is she knows my content area. Like she, she's in the research. So besides just being a fellow writer and on the journey and all of those things, which are amazing, she also, when she's looking at the writing, has an eye to what the, how the research is coming together, how the theories are being built. And that expertise has been really, really important. So at the very beginning, I think she just invited me to come to Nashville for a weekend and bring my computer and bring my stuff and we would just write in the same space and look at each other's stuff look at each other's writing and see how it all unfolded so i did i i got on a plane went to nashville she welcomed me into her lovely home and we spent the weekend just writing and some of it was even just writing in the same room right because there's I love this, actually, on Instagram, Kelly, you had posted, because her and I were having a little back and forth on Instagram, and she had said, writing is relational. And I was oh, like, so hey, yes, <laughs> Yes, it is. Okay. You know, because it just feels like there's something about writing in proximity, writing in the same space, where you just know the other person is doing what you're doing, and you're sort of regulating each other's nervous systems, Ooh. process. It's lovely. It's lovely. It, it,
1: it was profoundly wonderful. Because writing can be an, lonely. You you do have to go into your own zone, right? But when you're going into your own head, your own zone, your own heart to write, and another person in the room is doing the same thing, it I, we got so much done, didn't we, Michelle? We got so much done because mm-hmm. we were sharing a body-based experience. We were co-regulating each other. And fortunately, she and I both knew the benefit of that. And so... We didn't have to like talk each other into let's get together and do this. It was great.
2: Yeah, it was cool. <sighs> and we were able to work on it, like talk, 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 you know, review each other's stuff, talk it through, go work on it, often in the same room, <laughs> like come back, talk, 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 read, review, you know. So there was these, this rhythm of reading each other's work, giving each other feedback, working through some thorny parts getting reassurance about something that you're unsure about, all of those lovely things that you need as a writer, because you're not always sure. Um, and then being able to go and work on it and come, back, have that rhythm of working on it and coming back together. That was really, really helpful.
0: I'm just, my brain is just lit up thinking about this. The idea that you're co-regulating each other's This you're physically there's something chemical and biological that's happening there that does that's fascinating to me and it's it's confirming some sort of existing you know anecdotal evidence I have in my brain about uh, about circumstances like that and I also am remembering myself and my own propensity to write with my with my headphones on in the midst of other people and just having this like desire for everyone else to just also sit down and write alongside me I want them to yeah. stop and also do what I'm doing <laughs> so please can we all do that and I have some I have a friend a dear friend I was just with recently um, who did a writing retreat with some with some girlfriends and she's a mother of young children so when she told me that she had gone away with some friends and that she'd gotten more done in those three days than she had in the last six months I was like, Mm-hmm. Well, of course you have little kids, but what you're saying, I mean, you know, it, it made, it made sense on paper, but what you're saying is making me think, well, there are a lot of reasons that happened, not just because her kids weren't pulling on her. Right. So right. that's right. fascinating. I love that. And now I'm like thinking, I need, I need writing partners. <laughs> I need some writing yeah. partners. I think all our listeners are as
2: well. It's so helpful. And I think some of it is, I mean, I think like Kelly said, writing is Alone can be a lonely experience. But also, I think when you're writing all by yourself, you have to regulate everything that comes up for anybody who's creating something, which is doubt, worry, you know, fear, whatever. It, It. I think the creative process sort of surfaces whatever your stuff is from childhood and all of that. But then you're trying to regulate that all by yourself while you're writing, while you're doing the creating, while you're it's a lot. I think it's a lot to do. And I think that's why creatives talk a lot about the creative process because it's such a huge process to be in. And it's really helpful then to have somebody else with you in your presence, helping regulate your nervous system as you're doing that big work and big task.
1: Michelle, many times would look at me and say, this book's going to be big. Mm -hmm. And that's, I didn't even know how much I needed that. I really needed that. And her steady presence, which I'm sure your listeners can feel in in her voice, was just incredible um, for me. So not only could she read what I was writing from many frameworks, she could read it as a writer, she could read it as a daughter and a woman, but she could also read it as a clinician. So I had this amazing resource with, with Michelle, but Michelle also was a champion from my book for my book from the very, very beginning. When I would doubt it, when I would think, why am I doing this? I don't want to do this. She would say, oh, you you gotta do this. And that's also really helpful as a writer because first of all, I never really thought of myself as a writer. I'm just a therapist and this is this book needs to get out there and I guess I'll be the one to do it. But I always think that people that are writers write fiction and write memoir. Like those people amaze me. Those people are the real writers. I'm just this no. therapist that has these theories and I, and I guess I got to get them out there, but I don't feel like a writer. But Michelle was able to take a rough piece of writing, see the gems and the pearls in there and help me help me feel like a writer.
0: Well, sister, you are, because I've read the book and what you've accomplished is amazing. I'm so impressed. I I would have to say just sort of in dialogue with that, because I I too write, I I think the job of a writer is to connect with the reader and to deliver something worth connecting about, right? And so so a, a writer can be someone who creates a story, creates a story world for sure, a novelist. For, for instance, or they can be communicating something of a more in in line with knowledge or wisdom. Um, and as long as it's something worth communicating, that's that's the that's the trick, right? It has to be something worth communicating and sharing. Um, sometimes I even think of it, and if if I can just borrow from religion, sometimes I think of it as being like almost like communion. Like you need to take it seriously. This is, you know, we're giving, I'm, I'm feeding the reader something and the If it's, I can feed them Cheetos for sure. Like, but that's, is that going to be, is that effective? Is that helpful? Is that, you know, (laughs) is that
1: kind? Um, That's that's not even kind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Some would argue they're hot Cheetos. That might be worth the experience, but at any rate, so, so yeah, so definitely what you're giving here is nurturing and wisdom and guidance, right? And, 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 um, and even protection perhaps in, in the sense of, of you're giving readers Kelly something mm-hmm. that will
1: serve as nurture, protective guidance. Right? Those I are the totally three things. Am. I'm so glad you said that because the way I protected the reader in this book is I did not use case studies. I tell you, Amy, and Michelle knows this too, because Michelle and I do very deep trauma work. Our case studies are painful to hear, to know, and to hold. We protect our clients, but I wanted to protect the reader by not sharing graphic details of what happens when we're raised by a mother who isn't ready to care for us or can't or um, for whatever reason is compromised. And so what I used instead are movies that are mainstream, and, and I use novels, and I could use those as a way to illustrate the point but also protect the reader
0: such a kindness. I, I mean, boy, I love that. I love that you even, that you had that sensibility and that you were able to do that. Um, because it, it honestly, it would have been e- easy for lack of a better word for you to pull from reality. And, and that would have, um, I, I agree that would not have had benefits, benefits that outweighed the negatives. I think on that. yeah. So that's fascinating. Okay. So, okay. So we've talked a little bit about your friendship. We've talked, quite a bit about content. We've talked about your partnership. And that's, I think that's been fascinating. I want to know a little bit about the publishing piece because a lot of our listeners are, well, they're on the same, they're on a road of publishing, right? And so they want to know what is it like to be published by a traditional publisher and what um, sort of just, can you kind of illuminate that path just a little bit? What is it like to work with others to create a book that is this precious to your heart?
1: Well, um, I'll I'll start because I've had two publishers, so I've had two different experiences. And so I think I can maybe speak to uh, different variations of publishing. But in my first book, I went with a very small press. And the benefit to that was the book first of all, it only took me about nine months to write that first book, whereas Mother Hunger took me three years. But the first book came right out of me. They were ready. They edited it. And it was out in the world within, oh, 15 months. So that was lovely. It went fast. And of course, that was before social media. That was before we had all this pressure as an author to also have a platform Like there was no word of platform. There was no pressure that I felt in any way. And that was delightful. So that was a really good experience. But I did know for Mother Hunger, I wanted a bigger publisher because I wanted the um, opportunity for this book to hit a wider audience. And I'm not a marketer. I, I, I didn't have a platform at the time. So I took myself and went to the Hay House writing contest. And I just thought, I don't know. What's going to happen? So I submitted a proposal and I won the contest, which means they um, gave me an advance and and they're publishing the book. And I always, I never dreamed I'd get a publisher as big as Hay House. I was right. thrilled. I was just thrilled because I didn't have an agent. And without an agent, you can't go get those top five publishers. Amy knows all this. so So I got lucky and I have a big publisher. But I tell you, as great as that is, this manuscript was done last year before the pandemic hit. And yet it just now came into the world. And so Hay House has had it for over a year um, before it launches. And so that's been an interesting kind of dilemma where the book's done and I'm ready for it to be in the world. And then in that year they've held it, even science, we know more now, you know, I'd want to go back and Mm -hmm. read your certain chapters. So that's one of the unfortunate things. It just takes a long time with a bigger publishing house. But It's new in the world. It just came out yesterday, so I still don't know yet what the benefits are going to be from having such a great publisher that has a lot of outreach. What I do know is because Hay House took this book, the U.K. has already bought the rights for Mother Hunger. So Mother Hunger is getting more sales in the U.K. than it is in the U.S. right now. Turkey has bought the rights, China has bought the rights, and Russia has bought the rights. And so I think that would never have happened with a small publisher or if I have self-published. So that's exciting. Mother Hunger is going to be translated into those languages and reach more women. And that's what I really wanted, was that this book gets into the hands of the women that need it. And I knew by myself or with a small publisher that would have been hard to do.
0: That's fabulous. Well, it turned. it's a gorgeous gorgeous product. Yeah. And I mean sometimes in publishing we talk about products which sounds so not loving, but it but it is beautiful. And and so I think they did a great job in all capacities, not just the the cover, but also just the the way they've laid out the content and the way it um, looks on the page and the way it is,
1: we can consume, we can consume
0: it for lack of a better word. So
1: I was a stickler for that. Having had a small publisher, I think the interior of the book is almost as important as the exterior and they Mm -hmm. didn't really know how to do that in a smaller publishing house. So I worked closely with the editor at Hay House to make sure that interior felt good, looked good and would be a nurturing experience. Um, Mm -hmm. One other exciting thing that I'll just add is um, because Hay House is a l- larger publisher and they have more resources, they did send me to do the audiobook and let me do it in my own voice. And wow. I don't know how they made that decision because I remember asking them, because somebody asked me on Instagram, is there going to be an audiobook? So I went to my editor, I said, is there? And she said, no, we usually don't decide that. We see how the book sells first. Well, I guess pre sales were going well because they. A month later, they came to me and said, "Yeah, we're ready. We're going to do an audiobook. <laughs> it's so exciting!" So,
0: I love that. I love hearing. So, as I love listening to audiobooks, and when the author gets to read, oh, it's just that much more delicious. Michelle, can you, could, would you speak to the publishing experience? for Yeah. Me?
2: I also just want to say though, because I heard a little excerpt of the audio. Kelly sent it to me when she was recording it, and her voice is so nurturing as she reads the book. So I do think like the audio experience is going to be really lovely for people because of that. Good word, good word. Yeah. Um, So I'm in a totally different place than Kelly is with the whole publishing journey. So the two books that are out, the two little nuggets we talked about, because they were small and the intention behind them was for them to be kind of little quick nuggets, I didn't even attempt to go to a publishing house for those. I just self-published those. And so they're out, but they've been out for like three years and they, they just keep on selling, you know, they just keep on selling uh, and people keep finding them. And um, so I'm really happy. They're just there and available for people, you know, and they keep reaching the right audience. So, and then with the book I'm currently working on, I've got letters out to publishers and agents and I've got lots of hooks out there in the water. I've got a publisher who is interested, who has expressed interest, and we're in the process of figuring out if that's going to actually uh, end up in an offer. So we're in, in conversation. So I'm in kind of the beginning stages of trying to figure out where that book is going to land and where its home's going to be. So...
0: Well, if you're at all interested, please put on your calendar that you could come to WriterFest November 19th and 20th here in Nashville, because that's a place where you can definitely meet with with agents and mm-hmm. editors from all over nationwide. and. Oh, that's and uh, cool. So we'd love to have you. You both are always, there's going to be an open door at my house. The welcome mat is out. So come on. <laughs> and also for sure to come to WriterFest. You guys have been so amazing. it's been so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to be on the podcast and for just your vulnerability and your kindness. And, um, and thank you for your, your work, your work. We're so pleased. I hope everybody goes online and buys a copy of Mother Hunger today. We'll see those sales go up. Yeah. That'd be awesome.
1: Amy, yeah. thank you for having us. And thank you yes. so much for your enthusiastic what I want to say, I want to say midwifery, like you're a midwife for Mother Hunger. And I and I appreciate your enthusiasm. And the book wouldn't be here without you, Amy, and it wouldn't be here without Michelle. So it's really wonderful that we're all here together in this moment. Mm. Thank you. Mm.
0: So much love. So much yeah. love, you guys. Well, I hope right. you have a great day. Thank Thanks you. so much for being on WriterFest podcast. Bye. You've been listening to the WriterFest podcast. For more information, See RiderFestNashville.com and follow us on our socials.